This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Wow, what a lively audience we have today. Thank you. Um, it is a joy and an honor to be here with you today um, and with you, Dolores. And I just wanted to say, Dolores, your impact on the lives of Latinx in the United States and elsewhere is immense and indisputable. Your dedication to the farm workers' movement as a whole, the UFW, women's rights, climate change, and other activist work has made you a hallmark figure in the struggle for civil rights, earning you numerous awards and honors, including the Presidential Medal of Honor. Nine... <laughs> Nine honorary doctorates and many, many more. <laughs> many discussions of your legacy I include your advocacy for the Latinx community during a time when women's voices, especially those of color, were not centered. Um, you have lived a life with an unparalleled commitment to social and political service. Can you explain why? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess then, like today, uh, we, there were just a lot of uh, issues, a lot of people that were being discriminated, um, and... Uh, I was very fortunate uh, when I learned the basics of uh, grassroots community organizing that I, then I knew that I had the tools that I could go out there and help people uh, kind of challenge the issues that, 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 that were affecting them. I guess that once you learn that the best people uh, to solve their problems are the ones that are being affected by the problems. <laughs> but uh, that's kind of something that people don't really realize. Yeah. And, uh, and I think, in a way, that's kind of the basis of our democracy. But unfortunately, a lot of people just don't have the tools, and they don't realize that they have actually got the power to make the changes. Uh, but once they learn that, then there's no stopping them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, thank you for that. So starting out, it, it appears that you originally planned to become not an advocate in the community, right? You initially were a school teacher. Uh, so what were some of the earliest experience you can, experiences you can remember that inspired you to become involved in organizing? Well, I think as a young Latina, woman of color growing up in Stockton, California, not too far from here, <laughs> right? They call it in the house. And I was very fortunate, unlike some people that we know, I won't mention any names, but like in the White House. <laughs> I, I, I had the good fortune uh, to be able to grow up with a lot of different uh, ethnic groups. You know, my, my neighbors were immigrants from Italy, a kitty corner from my house, they were from Greek. Uh, we had uh, across the street uh, Filipino families, the Lampetok family. Uh, my neighbors on my right were African-American. Japanese, Chinese, uh, Native Americans, uh, immigrants from Oklahoma, the Okies, as they call them. And 
And we all grew up together, and it was really wonderful because, uh, you know, I think when you grow up with people of different ethnic groups, then uh, you, there's no way in the world that you can hate somebody or, or, or be afraid of somebody because they happen, happen to have a different color of skin or they speak a different language than you do. So I was very fortunate in that respect. And, and I think growing up again, when, I, when we were so discriminated, especially in high school, not so much in elementary school, but in high school, uh, there were these big divisions where you had the really rich kids and then the really poor kids, the poor white kids and the poor black kids and the poor Latino kids and the Asians. And, and you, that you started really feeling that discrimination. And, uh, and you had all of this anger, but there was nothing you could do about it. And, and then back there in the 50s, you kind of felt like it was something that, that this is just the way it was and there was no way that you could change it. So obviously, when I found out that you can change it, oh my God, it was like a whole new world. I felt like I found a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. So, so how did you find that pot of gold, or what led you to it? What inspired Well, it was actually in a, what we call a house meeting mm -hmm. with a great, uh, a great organizer named Fred Ross Sr. Mm -hmm. And I know there's probably some people in the room that do know about this man. If you don't, it's because he was such a great organizer that nobody knows who he is, right? Because he was, you know, his, his whole goal was to, to develop leadership. And Cesar Chavez, of course, is one of the people, among, amongst many others, uh, that Fred Roth Sr. Uh, went into a community, organized people, you know, found the leaders there, motivated them, uh, the grassroots leaders. And uh, so he's the one that taught us how to organize. And I, he, I call him my spiritual godfather, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because he really gave us the kind of tools that we needed, uh, that we could take those tools in uh, to poor people, uh, to farm workers, to others, to show that they had power and that they could make the changes that they needed to make. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I know what you're speaking about. So while in Stockton, you became a founding member of the Stockton chapter of the Community Service Organization, CSO, in 1953. So what forces or influences caused you to get involved in the CSO? And how did you begin organizing for Latinos? Well, the CSO, the Community Service Organization, and they did have a chapter in Oakland, and I believe here in San Francisco in the 50s. And it, it was for Spanish-speaking people primarily, and, uh, you know, getting people to register to vote, uh, trying to fight the police brutality uh, that existed then, and of course still now, um, but ways that we could really make a change. And we passed a lot of very significant legislation. I was fortunate to be the political director of that organization, and I kind of like to brag, because one of the bills that we passed back in 1963 was that you, if you were a citizen, that you could register another person to vote. Before that, you had to find a deputy registrar, you had to get deputized every year, and it was very hard to, to get people to register to vote. But when we passed that law in 1963, everybody could, everybody could register to vote. And the reason I mention this is because in Texas, if people wonder what's wrong with Texas, that's what's wrong with Texas. People can't register to vote. <laughs> they have the same voter registration laws in Texas that we had back here in, in the 50s and the 60s. And so I tell Beto O'Rourke and Julian Castro, get with it, okay? Do something in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, so how did unions form out of this? What, what led you to joining the union? Well, um, what actually happened, it was because of the Bracero program, because they were bringing in 
thousands of people from Mexico to work in the fields. And it, of course it was like slavery, really, because mm -hmm. they didn't have any rights at all. You know, uh, they were living in miserable, miserable conditions. I saw paychecks of people who worked two weeks and earned $15 mm -hmm. because they deducted everything from their paycheck. And uh, when they were injured, they had no doctors. They would send them back to Mexico, even in stretchers. It was a horrible situation. And uh, so, you know, I thought, what can we do about this? And of course, the local farm workers, their wages had dropped down to 50 cents an hour. That's what they were earning at that time. Yeah. And uh, it was a terrible situation. And so that's when Cesar and myself and the whole CSO, we focused on ending that program. And of course, unfortunately, it's alive today uh, under the Trump administration, and now it's called the H-2A Foreign Worker Program. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, they're trying to uh, pass uh, legislation that they would not have to pay the minimum wage. And, mm -hmm. and you know, so it, it was that motivation that said, well, you know, what, what workers need, of course, is a union. This is what the workers need. And so Cesar and I uh, talked about this, and we both tried uh, to form organized farm workers, and we turned them over to other labor organizations, but they kind of fell apart. So at that point, Caesar said, and, and he called me to his house one day, and uh, we were both working in Los Angeles at that time, and he said, I need to have a talk with you. And I said, okay. And he said, we have to start a union. I said, what? I thought he was kidding. In fact, I started laughing. And then he said, no, if we do not do it, farm workers will never have a union. And so, but then he said in the next breath, but uh, we, will, we will never see a national union in our lifetime. And I said, why, Cesar? He says, because the growers are too rich, they're too powerful, and they're too greedy, mm -hmm. and they're too racist. Mm -hmm. And of course, that was true, what he said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you still found a way to fight back, right? You formed the UFW, and you were very effective at what you did um, with the UFW. So starting out, um, I mean, obviously it wasn't all success at first, right? There weren't a series of successes, but there were later, right? So my next question is, as you worked with the CSO and then the UFW, how did you hone in on what needed to be done? And what mistakes did you make in organizing before you figured out which strategies worked and which did not? Well, you know, sometimes things just come to you, and that's why I like to say to people that are organizing, if we know that something needs to be done, just start doing it, mm -hmm. even if you don't have all of the answers, because the answers will come. And, of course, the answer that came to us was the boycott, mm -hmm. the great boycott. And actually, it was an attorney here from San Francisco uh, named Stu Weinberg, but people might know him, and he was one of our volunteer attorneys. He said, have you ever thought of starting a boycott? We said, wow, okay, let's try it. Because they were doing the bus boycott, you know, in yeah. the South. And so some of our young volunteers, they started hitchhiking and they started, went back east and started a boycott against one of the, one of the liquor companies, Shenley. And of course we won. And, and I like to talk about the great boycott because sometimes, especially right now, uh, when things are so rough and people get kind of disheartened. But I like to say to people, there, were, there was a busload of 40 farm workers and volunteers, young volunteers, one of the, one of the people was a Filipino uh, who couldn't, well, he was 80 years old, 80 years old. And some of the farmers that went couldn't speak English, but they all went in, in a bus to New York City. And in a year and a half, they were able to organize the whole United States of America to stop eating grapes. 17 million Americans stopped eating grapes. Wow. Yeah. yeah. 
That's incredible. And, and I know people in the audience here, many of you are out there that stopped eating grapes and also picketed stores and, you know, helped the farm workers win. But I like to use that example because sometimes we think that, that you know, what we, that, that our activism work and what we have to accomplish right now is so big mm -hmm. that maybe we can't do it. But the way that the farm workers did it and those young volunteers is they just went out there and talked to people and talked to people. Yeah, yeah. They went to labor union meetings and... Uh, every audience that they could find, churches, et cetera, to get people to help. And I think that's what we have to do today. Mm -hmm. Good point. Thank you so much for that. I wanted to sort of um, sidetrack back to talking about the Bracero program briefly because it came up. And I, um, I as a historian of the Bracero program, I, I've studied this history. And I, you know, a lot of you may not know this, but from 1942 to 1964, the U.S. government allowed for the importation of um, between four to five million uh, Mexican men into the United States to work in agriculture. And so, um, just speaking about that a little bit, um, can you tell us about what you did? For for Braceros um, and about why you did that and also what impact that had not only on the Bracero program but on the UFW. And then we'll, I, I, I want to come back to the Great Poicot, but Well, um, for the Bracero program, we actually uh, worked very hard to end the program mm -hmm. because, as I said before, the local workers are, we just were dropping, the Braceros were being treated very badly, and then they had so many, and they would actually rent them out. Like one grower would rent the workers to another grower, just like slaves, you know? And they weren't making any money either, so they were almost working for free. Mm -hmm. So we worked very hard to end the program. But then what happened, very, a very interesting thing happened. Now with all the talk about immigration that we hear today, right after the program ended in 1963, guess what? In 1964, our federal government legalized the Braceros without any legislation. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? We don't know, but it just happened, okay? And how do I know it happened? <laughs> how do I know it happened? Because actually, Cecil and myself, and many of us that were just, you know, founding uh, then, at that time, the United Farm Workers, uh, we were actually processed the applications for the Braceros, and they only needed three documents. Mm -hmm. They needed a letter from an employer, who could be a labor contractor even, that they would give them work, uh, a letter from someone in the community that said that they would be responsible if they got sick so that they wouldn't become a public charge, and their fingerprints. Three documents. Three documents. It was all that they needed. And yeah. thousands of the braceros were legalized in the United States. Mm -hmm. Wow. Who? Cool. <laughs> I'd love to talk more about this because it impacted later movements towards legalization for workers in the United States. Um, but I want to come back to, you know, the UFW and the Great Boycott because at that time you consistently articulated both an environmental and a social justice message. And that message was that there is probably no greater connection that we have with the earth than through the food that we eat. And also that those who harvest the food that sustains us are among the most unappreciated and exploited. So the Great Boycott popularized and linked workers' rights and environmental justice movements on a broad national level. Can you tell us about other campaigns you may have engaged to protect workers, their health, and the environment? And how do we do this kind of work today? Well, we know the issue of pesticides is still, you know, one that we are still fighting. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we were able to actually, in, in the United Farm Workers, we were able to ban, uh, probably we call them the Dirty Dozen, including DDT and some of the other really Dynasev, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Unfortunately, they keep making new ones. And, uh, and, and the bad thing is that, uh, and I just want to mention, sometimes uh, these people that make uh, the pesticides, and I'm going to mention uh, Bayer and Monsanto, okay? As we all know, Monsanto developed this, uh, the Roundup. Mm -hmm. And they are so cynical that, I think it's the Wall Street Journal that I read this, that they said, yeah, we have all of these lawsuits of people that have cancer. Well, we're going to settle the lawsuits, but we're going to keep making the pesticide because it brings us so much money. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is kind of the cynical, you know, thinking that they have. So it's profits about people's health. Mm -hmm. and I, but I do think that there is one simple way uh, to kind of control the economic poisons, because this is what they are, and to put it under health and human services. Mm -hmm. Take it out of the EPA, take it out of agriculture, mm -hmm. and let's put it somewhere where they can really be tested it, because these are poisons. This is, these are economic poisons, and they are on our food. And I think that we all know that the United States of America, we have the highest cancer rate of any country in the world. And so we can't just think about just the farm workers that get poisoned, farm worker children that have deformities when they're born. But, uh, you know, we have to also think of the consumers uh, because they are eating that food that is so contaminated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of what you did actually end up to the like organic foods movement that we think about today is so popular, right? It's 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 interesting that, that a lot of people don't don't think about well this actually happened because of this great boycott because it popularized it, right? It made it possible for people to start linking food to their bodies and what it does to their bodies from the based on the environment. So uh, so that was um, something I thought would bring up. So how do we continue that work? How do we how do we make this move that be EPA to the Department of Health Services, what kind of organizing work can we do? Well, I think a lot of it is just legislation. We have to elect people uh, to Congress, elect people to our state legislatures that will support these initiatives. And we know that uh, we, we support good people to get elected, but then we have to also stay on top of them, you know, mm -hmm. because they get pressured a lot from the more conservative lobbyists. And so if we're not there watching and put, putting the heat on them, you know, they will go in the other direction. They'll go south on it. But it, we can make it happen. It's all about, you know, again, people power, people getting involved. Just recently, and I think people might know this, but uh, in this last session of the legislature, uh, we passed a water bill to clean up all of the poisons uh, in the water in California. And it's going to be about a billion dollars. Wow. It, it, it's, yeah, it, that's what's going to take up our tax dollars. But it took a decade to pass that bill. Took 12 years, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, 10 years. But, you know, when we think about that, um, we put a man on the moon, you know, yeah. in less time than we cleaned up our drinking water. But it's going to happen now. It's going to happen now with Governor Gavin Newsom. Of course, he made it happen. Yeah. And all the people that advocated for it, of course. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. So, um, so I'm going to sort of shift gears here and ask you a little bit about... Um, You've upheld and shown throughout your life that equal participation of women is vital to any movement or cause. Can you tell us about your shift to feminism and when you began to reevaluate your position as a woman in the movement? Well, uh, I feel very strongly about that. 
my, my, I always thought I was a feminist because my mother was, you know, uh, she was a strong uh, figure in our family, the dominant mm -hmm. figure. She was a businesswoman and um, a single parent for a long time <clears throat> and uh, a leader in the community. But I hadn't really crossed uh, that whole important path about the right to abortion because as a Catholic, the way that I was raised, that abortion is a sin, right? Mm -hmm. So I ended up with 11 children. <laughs> But, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, you know, with you know, talking to Gloria Steinem, talking to Eleanor Smeal, who's the uh, the head of the feminist majority, Peg York, and they finally got me to understand that this is about science, okay? This is about science, and this is about women having control over their bodies. And if women do not have control, as we all know, the audience here, if women do not have the control over their bodies, they can't even control their own, their own fates, their own careers. And that's really, really important. But I think now we have to go even further. And recently, I have been quoting Coretta Scott King, who said, we will never have peace in the world until women take power, okay? Yeah. And, <laughs> And, uh, and we know that women add a lot. I mean, and I think that, and I, I really do believe this sincerely, when there is any kind of a meeting and you have all of these people making decisions that affect everybody's lives and affect things that are happening, on, happening in our world, if we do not have an equal number of feminists at that table, they're going to make the wrong decision, okay? They're going to make the wrong decision. And yeah. I, I just want to mention that I just saw the movie Harriet, about Harriet Tubman. I don't know if people have seen that. But, you know, when I saw that movie, I realized something that I think I have, and I think that a lot of women have, and that is intuition. Intuition. And I don't know how many times after I saw the movie, I kept reflecting on my own life. And when you get these really strong feelings that you know that something isn't right, and I think that we as women, we hold ourselves back and we don't speak up and we don't fight for our positions, then, then I think that's where women's power, we're kind of holding back. Mm -hmm. And after I saw the Harriet Tubman movie, I kind of thought, there are so many times where I should have spoken up stronger, you know, than I did. Of course, she had a gun, I think, in the movie, right? <laughs> she had a gun. <laughs> so we have to find something to substitute for the gun, right? Yeah. <laughs> but we have to kind of really, really fight for what we think is right as women mm -hmm. and find the kind of tools that we need and the support that we need because we do want justice. We, as women, we want economic justice. You know, we want equality. We want to challenge the things that are wrong in our society and in our world. And we just have to work very, very hard to make sure that we, and I'm going to use the word feminist because we know there are some women that aren't there yet, right? <laughs> and uh, that feminists can take power. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Can. Thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> I don't know about anyone else here, but I kind of put you up there with Harriet Tubman, so I, I can't imagine oh, not, comparing Not Clyde, but, but thank you for that anyway. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So uh, just to follow up on that, how was feminism regarded in the fem farm workers movement? Um, how did men on the board of the UFW treat it and treat you? And were there ever times when your leadership was devalued because you are a woman? What did you do in those instances? 
Well, I think I was fortunate in one respect because since I was the founder, along with Cesar, and then all the farm workers who really respected me, I had a lot of problems with the other male board members uh, because they were always trying to undermine me or trying to figure out how they could mess up what I was doing. So I had to learn some, uh, I'm going to say planning. Some people call it scheming. Yeah. <laughs> and how to get around, you know, all of the obstacles that they would put in front of me, okay? Yeah. And, to make sure that I, and, then, and then advocating for more women uh, to be on the board. And it, it was hard, too, because some of the women uh, didn't feel that they belonged there. And I had to really organize them and convince them, well, you've got to come and sit on the board. And it, it was hard for many women. And I think that's the big, the big problem, I think. And I think many of the women here in this audience, this doesn't apply to many of you, but I think to uh, a lot of younger women, I think that's the one thing that we have to learn is that we have to push ourselves, you know. Mm-hmm. And even when we don't feel like we feel, I mean, that's uncomfortable, but that's okay to be uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you know. But we've got we've to step into those leadership positions even if we don't feel that we have the experience or we don't have the education. And I like to say to women, basically, we have to do it like the guys do. Pretend that you know, okay? <laughs> Learn on the job. Learn on the job, okay? <laughs> because that's what they do, you know? Yeah. Thank you for that. That was wonderful. Well put. <laughs> so, so going into the United Farm Workers a little bit, what were your, some of your most uh, memorable moments in, in the UFW working with Cesar Chavez? What really stands out to you in your working relationship? Well, I think the lessons that I learned from Cesar, um, I talked about what I learned from Fred Ross, but uh, Cesar, I think a lot of times when we want to go out there and want to advocate for people, we feel, well, maybe that's not my community, Mm-hmm. And maybe they don't want me there because mm-hmm. uh, I coming from a middle class background, going to work with really poor farm workers, and I remember telling Caesar, "Well, I don't really know if I can really help you know people organize." And he said he, he gave me a really important lesson. He said, "Look, if they could have organized without you, they would already have themselves organized. Okay, yeah. if they could have done it without you, they would have already done it. You know, mm-hmm. and and so I, I don't think that we have to be." Uh, feel like we're unwelcome, because I think when people know that you're trying to help them and you're sincere, you're not trying to take advantage of them or exploit them or use them, then people will welcome you and accept you. Mm-hmm. So I think that was an important lesson. The other important lesson I learned from Cesar, and that was in the first couple of weeks of the strike. So I was a strike captain. I had all my teams on the picket line, and every day they would bring more and more strike. We'd get a whole crew out, the next day there would be another crew. Following day, we'd get people out. They'd bring in more strike breakers. And so uh, at one point, I left somebody in charge of my picket line. I went down to the office, and I said, Caesar, I don't know if we're going to be able to win this. They keep bringing in more and more strike breakers. And he said, you go back to your picket line right now. Don't you ever leave it. And don't forget, the only time that we lose is when we quit, and we're never going to quit. So I think that's <laughs> what we have to learn. That when, yeah. And even if it takes a long time, you know, as yes. long as we keep going and, 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 and working and doing the work that we do, you know, we will win in the end. But we just can't get uh, cynical or we can't get so uh, have d- despair the work that we're doing that, that we don't win. We think we're not going to win. We are going to win, but we just have to keep working. Okay. Yeah? Great. So 
So with workers' unions, how do we do that? How do we form unions as workers? How do we get involved with union organizing? What, what can we do to get started if we're interested in unions? Forming? Well, it's fairly easy because there are laws that, that help workers organize. And uh, there's, the, there's laws at the national level. And uh, I, I know that, again, President Trump is trying to make it more difficult, especially for uh, people at colleges to be able to organize. Uh, they're trying to take away the right of college students to organize. I mean, the researchers, you know. And But the thing is, if, if people come together, and that's all it is. What is a union? A union is an organization of workers. That's all that it is. And that's, that's what a union is. And workers can choose their own leaders uh, that they want. And what you can do is you can file uh, with the National Labor Relations Board, uh, and, or if you're a teachers or a public servant, you have another uh, set of laws that cover you. People just come together, they file a petition, and if there are, uh, if the employer is very oppressive, you can file an unfair labor practice against them. If they try to, to uh, retaliate against the workers or an individual, and that individual can file a lawsuit uh, against the employer. That's why you have to have these labor laws that protect people, and that's what the farm workers didn't have. And so when we did the strike and we did the boycotts, that's what we got. We got the Agricultural Labor Relations Act, the best law in the United States, almost the only law in the United mm -hmm. States of America, except Hawaii, where workers can actually organize. And that's kind of sad when you think about it, because all of the other states in the United States do not have laws that protect workers from organizing. Yeah, so there's still a lot of work right. to be done. So that was 1975. And I, I like to remind people too, and maybe somebody in the audience here knows, but has anybody ever asked, how did we get the eight-hour day? Mm. It was in Chicago. It was May Day. There was a huge, demo, a huge demonstration at the turn of the last century. And then I like to ask people, do you know what happened to the people, the union leaders that got us the eight-hour day? Do you know what happened to them? No. They were executed. Really? They were hung. See, and we're not taught that in our school mm -hmm. systems, okay? And we have to teach people what labor is because organized labor, workers organized into their own organization, their union, this is what has created the middle class in our United States of America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have a middle class, we don't have a democracy. And so this whole push of trying to crush and destroy labor unions, you know, that, that is really, uh, it, it's an impairment on our democracy. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. So um, in the 1980s, you were the vice president of the United Farm Workers and their radio station. You continue to speak for a variety of causes, including advocating for a comprehensive immigration reform policy. Can you tell us more about your organizing efforts um, around immigration reform? Well, we did a lot of, as I mentioned before, uh, in 1986, Mm -hmm. I actually lobbied uh, the amnesty bill to the Congress, and um, we were able to pass that law, and we were able to uh, get legalization status for two million farm workers and wow. about four million other workers, okay, uh, from the people that lived in their residency. Mm -hmm. and again, Wonderful. And again, right. it was very simple. Uh, for people that live, say, in San Francisco or other places like that in urban areas, they just had to produce records that they had been in, in the United States for five years. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they had good conduct. And for farm workers, they only had to uh, produ um, produce uh, records that showed that they had worked in agriculture for 90 days for three consecutive years. 
That's how easy it was. Wow. And people, yeah. yeah. And you know, when people talk, and we have to kind of constantly remind people that when they talk about uh, undocumented people, we have to just remind them again and again and again that guess what? We are all immigrants, right? Everybody in this country is an immigrant, unless you're Native American, your people came from somewhere. Your people came from somewhere. And, and it's not a criminal act across the border. It's a civil violation, but they have made it a felony. Mm -hmm. They have made it a felony uh, for people across the board. And you know what I'd like to say to people? I don't know if people remember that uh, President Trump wanted to build a wall on the Colorado border. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he was looking at a map of 1847. <laughs> and, and I would suggest to everybody, Google the, Google the map of the United States before 1847, and it's a shocker, because when you look at that map, you see a third of the United States was Mexico. A whole third of the United States. So when they tell us Latinos to go back where you came from, we have to say, we are where we came from, okay? <laughs> So we like to say, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. <laughs> that often comes up in my classes, uh, so, so often. So, um, so, there, um, so the government of the United States has since committed terrible atrocities against migrant families from Latin America and the Caribbean, especially through family separations and deportations. Can you tell us about your efforts in support of legalization and offering pathways to citizenship? And how can we successfully organize today for the rights of undocumented migrants and refugees? Well, I think we have to do a number of things. And I think I want to start with foreign policy, mm -hmm. uh, because when we think of the people that have co are coming here as refugees, and they're coming from where? From Guatemala, from El Salvador, and from Honduras. And I like to use the word bananas. Mm -hmm. How many bananas do we eat in the United States every single day? Jillions of bananas. Does the money that we spend on bananas go to the people in Guatemala, or El Salvador, you know? Uh, it, no, it, it, or Honduras, no, it goes to Chiquita Banana. It goes to Dole Banana and the 50 banana companies. It does not go to the, poop, the people that produce the bananas on their land, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we wonder why there is so much poverty there. And then when we talk about the escaping of terror from these gangs, how are those gangs created? Those are people that we deported mm -hmm. to th those countries, you know, especially El Salvador. You know, instead of getting these young people that were in gangs, that were having those, those the, the, the issues that they had, instead of trying to reform them and trying to help them, no, we deported them, you know? And so now we have that situation that we have there. But we, as the United States of America, have got to be better neighbors and really help the countries south of the border to develop their own resources the way that we did with Japan and Germany after World War II, you know? We tax, we, our American tax dollars are what helped all of the uh, corporations over there in both Japan, like, you know, Mitsubishi, who, who actually built the tanks that attacked American soldiers. We helped those companies, uh, you know, be corporations, be able to, uh, to get their economic strength again. But we've never done that with our neighbors to the south. And, and then I think uh, we do need a, another uh, comprehensive immigration reform, but the only way that we're going to get that, of course, is hopefully in our next elections. If we can yeah. get, elect a Congress and elect a president that will support that. But yeah. we have to change the way that we look. And when we think about it, goods cross borders, mm -hmm. money crosses borders, 
But the people that create the goods, they can't cross the borders. So mm -hmm. there's something wrong. We talk about a global, a global world, a global economy, but yeah. that doesn't apply to the people uh, you know, that are actually you know, often uh, you know, producing the goods that are being, that are being exported everywhere. Right. So, so following up on that, how can we effectively combat racist anti-immigration sentiment in the era of Trump and its aftermath? How, I, there's one simple way that we can combat racism. Dr. Martin Luther King said that racism is a, an illness, that it's a sickness. And I think all of us can become healers. And there's one easy way to do that, and that is just to remember who we are. That we only have one human race, homo sapiens. One human race. We have a lot of different ethnic groups, we have a lot of different cultures, a lot of different nationalities. But we have to remember that our human race began in Africa, went across the planet to Asia, came down through the Americas. You know, people got a little bit lighter in skin. And then one of our tribes ended up in Europe, where it's really cold, and uh, they kind of intermingled with the Neanderthals, and they lost the color, okay? Now, some of you have to go to the tanning salon or to the beach to get your color back. <laughs> but if we can remember that, we are all one human race, and we are Africans of different shades and colors, okay? And so we can say to the KKK, to the white nationalists, get over it, you're Africans. <laughs> Enough already. <laughs> And in fact, I would like to ask everybody in the audience, take the hand of the person next to you. Take the hand of the person next to you. So we are all related. So turn to the person next to you and say, hello, relative. <laughs> and we know, we know our human race never would have survived unless we supported each other and protected each other, okay? That's the only way that we survived, and so we have to really think about that and uh, become part of the healers. And let's, at your dinner table for Thanksgiving, remind your family that we're all Africans. <laughs> I love it. Um, so thank you for that. Um, and keep hope alive for this, because I, I really think, you know, it's so easy to just get downtrodden when we think about the person in the White House and what's happening with this vitriolic racism. And so to, you know, make light and to say, hey, we're all one species, I think is, is very moving and very empowering. Um, so there are many other issues you fought for that impact American, the American public beyond immigrant rights and beyond anti-racism, including national health care, LGBT rights, and education. You've noted that much of our tax dollars are going to prisons and not into education. How can we organize and fight back against this particular concern? Well, that's part of the work that my foundation is doing. We're working on stopping the school-to-prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And uh, we actually sued, our high, a lot of it has to do with education because our kids of color are not getting an equitable education. And in Bakersfield, California, where I'm from, Kern County, it's kind of like Alabama, okay? Kevin McCarthy's district, Congressman Kevin McCarthy, okay? So there we actually sued our, our high school district there 
uh, it's, it's 40,000 students in the high school district. Wow. They had suspended, excuse me, they had expelled 2,600 students in a year. 2,600 uh, African-American students, uh, right. 600 times higher than Anglo students, Latino students, 500 times higher, and we won. And they have to, all of the teachers have to be, take instructions on getting an implicit bias. And uh, anyway, the success story is from 2,600 expulsions, last year it was 26. Wow, that's wonderful. So exciting. But uh, so, you know, this is all throughout the, all throughout the whole United States of America that we, that we have this inequity in terms of the way that our, children, mm-hmm. our kids of color are being taught, and yeah. we have to change that. And of course, we realize, you know, that uh, our school teachers are not getting paid enough money. Mm-hmm. They still have too many. Uh, they, you know, the, the class sizes are too strong. They don't have counselors. They don't have social workers. Mm-hmm. And so part of the work that we're doing in my foundation is that we organize the parents. So we're active, like, in 12 different school districts. And, uh, you know, we get the parents to come up, and they go to the school board meetings, and they look at the budgets, and they see how they're spending the money. And we've been able to actually get rid of uh, some superintendents uh, that were actually not doing their job. We've gotten rid of uh, uh, some people that... Again, earning six figures, and some, some, one person didn't even have a credential, but they were friends of the school board members. Uh, we're getting our people to serve on the school boards themselves, even though maybe they have limited English, never went to high school, never went to college, but they know how to do the job. One example, one of our leaders, and she, and she got, elected to the, got herself elected to the, to the school board, well, they were trying to get rid of the breakfast program for the farm worker kids. So she got rid of the principal and kept the breakfast program. Well, <laughs> good for her. Yeah. And the other thing that we're doing, uh, we're going to uh, actually, get, and I'm sorry we don't have petitions here tonight, but we are getting signatures uh, to pass a bond issue, not a bond issue, uh, to pass a, a, a proposal on the 2020 November election. It's called Schools and Communities First. Schools and communities first. And we hope when you see people gathering signatures, uh, please sign that petition. Uh, we have to get 600,000 signatures, but it will bring in $12 billion into our school systems, okay? And where's that money going to come from? From our major corporations like Chevron and Disney so that they can pay their fair share of property taxes, which right now they're not paying. It, it will not... It, it will not affect homeowners. It will not affect homeowners. Uh, it, w- it will not affect small businesses. Any small, small business that is under $3 million, it will not affect them. It's only for the big guys. So people have to right. understand that. So the, the you know, the... Uh, uh, but the, the group that's always against taxes, they're going to be sending, they're already sending a lot of letters out, especially to uh, people of color, already trying to scare them into not, into not, uh, not voting for this measure, okay? okay? Schools and communities first. Okay, in schools and communities first. Mm-hmm. We'll remember that. Thank you. And I'll share it with my students as well. <laughs> Thank you. So in searching for a more expansive vision of activism in the United States, you've often found ways as well to commit to causes cross-racially, cross-ethnically. How have you done that work, and how can we organize together for universal equality and social justice? Well, I think we have to start with our educational system, and we have to start putting into our educational system, you know, what the contributions of people of color have been, uh, you know, to build our country. I like to say that in our school books, we were not taught that the White House and the Congress were built by African slaves. 
-hmm. Who knew that, right? And uh, Native Americans, too, what we did to that population, and also what the contributions of immigrants have been. We've got to uh, start uh, teaching uh, young men uh, and young women uh, that, you know, men and women are equal from the time that they're like in kindergarten, mm -hmm. you know, so the girls never think that they have to be socialized to be accommodating and supportive and not think about themselves. But I think our, we can do a lot with, with our educational system, but we've got to, again, take control of the, of the educational system itself and kind of teach the Howard Zinn history of the United States of America, mm -hmm. you know? That's what we have to teach. And, and so, our, you know, we can start uh, erasing all of the racism, the homophobia, mm -hmm. all of the isms that we have in our society. Yeah. But, you know, we have, to, we have to make democracy work, basically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, as an educator uh, and in Latinx studies, mm -hmm. that is my primary motive, and, and so I appreciate you saying that. Um, so in an interview recently, you said that the past revolution was a social revolution, but our future revolution should be an economic revolution. Could you explain more of what you mean and how we can make that happen? Well, we have to make it happen uh, because I know uh, a lot of our presidential candidates are talking about health care mm -hmm. and how we should all have health care for all. And I know some say, well, how are we going to pay for it? Well, how do they pay for it in, in Scandinavia? And in Europe, you know, uh, socialist countries over there, how do they pay where everybody has free health care? Mm -hmm. How do they pay for it in Cuba? Cuba's a little teeny country that has an economic boycott. But guess what? Everybody has health care. Everybody has a free college education in Cuba. So we are the richest country in the world, and we cannot continue the situation that we have now where you have 1% of the wealthy families, the Waltons who own Walmart, okay, Friends don't let their friends shop at Walmart, okay? Uh, <laughs> so the wealthy families own 50% of the wealth in our society, and if you add the wealthy families plus the wealthy corporations, 10% of them own 90% of the wealth. 90% of the wealth. So how can that be? And so we shouldn't ever think that there isn't enough money to pay for health care, mm -hmm. for college education, for housing for people. Mm -hmm. You know, how can we be the richest country in the world and have so many homeless people? Yeah. So these are the things that we have to eliminate. The wealth is there. And you know, I like to quote Gandhi. Gandhi said, we have enough resources to fill the need. We will never have enough resources to fill the greed. <laughs> There's never enough money for that. Mm -hmm. So that's what we have to work for. Yeah. We have to, we have to, and we shouldn't think that we can't do it. Mm -hmm. Just like I mentioned, uh, you know, making these big corporations pay their fair share of property taxes, well, that'll bring in $12 billion. I think yeah. well, Nancy Skinner, who is a senator from Oakland, from the Bay Area here, uh, she has a bill, and hopefully we can get some support for it, for a wealth tax, okay? So for some of the... Um, national organizations and international uh, businesses, corporations that do business in California, make them pay a little bit more in taxes, okay? And it's a tiny amount for them, something like 2% that would bring in the money back. So we've got to figure out how we reconfigure the wealth so that it doesn't stay at the top. And mm -hmm. how can it be, and this is a question I've been asking myself, how can you have investors own a public utility like PG&E? How does that happen? How does that happen? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we really got to 
we've really got to become advocates and we've got to become uh, really, really involved in what's going on in government. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. the other thing we have to remember too, and I know those people that are, say, say they're anti-government. When you have a public agency and they do something wrong, you can hold them accountable. If you have a corporation like Bayer, Monsanto, how do you hold them accountable, okay? You know, how do you hold them accountable? We have to remember that. So again, we have to think of, of ways that we can make, make that, kind of make those changes mm -hmm. and then st stop the outsourcing. How can, again, a public utility that affects every single person, how can be, that be outsourced to investors? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Something's wrong with that picture. Absolutely. We have to change it. We have to change it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so speaking of, you know, big business and big government, um, some people would argue that there are candidates within the Democratic Party who are closely tied to big business and interests that are adverse to labor and working class communities. What advice would you give to voters in the 2020 election in evaluating a candidate's commitment and support of labor and working class communities? Well, I think we have to try to elect candidates that are going to uh, care for working people, you know, support labor organizations, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, I think that's what we have to look for in our congressional candidates and also, and also at the local level also. Sometimes we forget about, you know, the local level. I'm glad to say I'm going to announce that my son is running for Board of Supervisors, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those local, those local uh, uh, positions are also very, very important. So we just all, and I know sometimes I'm speaking to the choir here because here in the Bay Area you do have that kind of, of activism and you do have really good representation, unlike mm -hmm. us in the Central Valley of California. But that's I think true. that's the way that we make it happen. And, of course, some of us have to run for office out there, you know? We have to yeah. make that happen also. Yes. Yeah, and, and I think with the Bay Area, though, you know, the cost of living has gone up so high that it's almost a deterrent for people to become involved in organizing. So what would your advice be to, say, the average working class person who's working 40 hours a week, working 50 hours a week, two jobs? How would you tell them to get involved in organizing? Well, they have to. We need them. And, you know, we talk, there's a lot of talk about the $15 an hour minimum wage, but actually for people to really support their families right now. And I think even in San Francisco, it's probably even too low. People should be earning $30 an hour, you know, $30 an hour. Absolutely. And even that might be too low because I know like the housing here is unbelievably, unbelievably high. Mm -hmm. And we have to stop the gentrification because working people, you know, they can't afford to live in San Francisco anymore. Mm -hmm. So, that, you know, that's got to change. And the only people that could, I think that's the one thing that we have to really understand that we, the people have got the power to change things and to make you know, enact policies that we need. That we just can't wait for somebody else to do it. We've got to have a voice. And you were talking about people that are working two jobs just to, uh, to be able to meet their basic needs. And when people are working two jobs, or sometimes when people are in school, uh, you know, they've got all these issues, and they think, well, I just don't have time to get involved uh, politically. But we have to get involved. And I like to say to people, when you become an activist, all of those issues that you have at home, all the problems that you have at home, guess what? They kind of take care of themselves, okay? <laughs> and if you're, be, if you're being an activist, you don't have time to think about them, you know? And it, it really, it helps you stay healthy and well. <laughs> 
Great. Well, so now you are doing so much work with the Dolores Huerta Foundation. You cross the country engaging in campaigns and influencing legislation that supports equality and defends civil rights. So can you tell us a bit about the foundation? Why did you start it? What is it doing? And is there a way people can get involved to help? Well, I left the Farmer's Union in 2002. And uh, for those of you that saw the documentary, and if you haven't seen it, it was produced by Carlos Santana. It's called Dolores. But in the documentary, uh, you know, they, they dwell a lot on my, not, on my not taking the leadership of the United Farm Workers. But when Caesar passed away, I was 63 years old. And I didn't know how long I was going to live. And I just felt that we had to pass on the baton to somebody younger. So I advocated for then-President Arturo Rodriguez, who, by the way, has recently resigned. And the farm workers uh, now has a woman leading the union named Teresa Romero. Okay? Yeah. So, that, that, so that's good. That's good. But then I wanted to go back to grassroots organizing like we did with the community service organization and, you know, kind of building that, that leadership that, that we have to, that we need, you know, because in every community there's a lot of innate leadership. It's, it's not the usual people that you think about, but people that really want to go out there and do things and, and show them how to come together, uh, how to, uh, to, to fix what they need in their community. I mentioned this one lady that uh, got herself like to do the school board well, she and her husband, uh, Timoteo, her name is Leticia, her husband named Timoteo, uh, they wanted a, uh, to, they didn't have a gymnasium for their middle school, and the pollution of the air in Kern County is so bad that kids couldn't go outside and play for recess or lunch, you know. They yeah. had to stay in the classroom. So they actually went and uh, petitioned, uh, got a, the signatures, and they passed a bond issue. And they have a state-of-the-art gymnasium that they built for their community. And so these are the kind of issues that they take on. Uh, you know, we have, we have places down there where people don't have sidewalks, they don't have street lights, uh, they don't have, they're, not a, they, they, they're not attached to sewers. Uh, you know, all of these different problems that people have. And, of course, the educational system, as we mentioned before. So we go out there to all these communities, and I, I, I think it's like magic. It's like you go out there and you have some kind of magic dust and you go and you go to a community and you get the people together in house meetings the way that I was organized, the way Cesar was organized and we have all these house meetings Then we bring people together and guess what? The magic happens. They start, you know, they all, we get them together, they make a laundry list of the, thing, the changes that they need. They have to prioritize one or two or three issues. Then they have to do the work. They have to volunteer to make it happen. And it's really amazing. So right now we're in, uh, we're actually in five different counties, or four different counties. We're in Kern, Tulare, and Fresno County in the Central Valley of California. And we just started organizing in the Antelope Valley because there, the situation, educational situation, uh, that the African-American students in a city, a town called California City, 81%, eight out of 10 African, uh, black students were being expelled and suspended from school. And when they would do something wrong, they would call the police department. They wouldn't call the parents. Mm -hmm. So each one of those kids had a record immediately, talking about stopping the school-to-prison yeah. pipeline, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're working up in that area also. And so in every community that we go to, we organize the people so that they are the ones that have to take on the issues. They're the ones that have to solve the problems. And that's where the leadership happens. So it's very exciting. And right now we're working on the census. Right, yes. Thanks. And, and I just want to say to people, too, uh, and, and ask people to volunteer also. In these hard-to-count communities, there is so much fear 
because of what the Trump administration did. When Trump came down that escalator attacking Mexicans, the deportations, and so a lot of the Latinos, especially people who are immigrants, or especially the undocumented, they are terrified to be counted. And we are going to have to count, talk to them, and talk to them, and talk to them, and say, don't be afraid. There will be no question on citizenship on, 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 the, on the census, because our organization, we sued, and we won. We sued Trump, and we won. I love and so we have to say to people, don't be afraid. And the thing is that they have to understand, every person that does not get counted, we lose every individual in California that does not get counted, we will lose $20,000 over a 10-year period for every person that does not get counted. Wow. I mean, it's going to be devastating. Not only will we lose millions of dollars, but also we will lose representation. Mm-hmm. We, could, we could lose congressional seats right. if people do not get counted. So I just want to say to folks, uh, if you want to volunteer, and come, right now our organization, starting last week, we are going door-to-door and talking to people about why it's important for them to get counted. So if people here want to volunteer to go into those neighborhoods and talk to people and say, you have to get counted, and reminding them that the census is confidential, they can't share the information. If anybody shares information on the census, they can go to prison for five years or be fined $250,000, okay? okay? So that's, we, have, we just get that message out there and get that message out there. And I like to say this in Spanish, si no nos contamos, nos fregamos. <sighs> and in English, I guess it's kind of like, if we don't get counted, we get screwed. <laughs> mm-hmm. We lose a lot. <laughs> So true. So how do, how do we get involved in that? Where do we go to find out more? Well, I would say, like, if, with, with, your, uh, mm-hmm. with your, your students, mm-hmm. if they could go into na- neighborhoods, uh, especially people of color, mm-hmm. and just uh, remind them and tell them not to be afraid and remind them that if they don't get counted, your school is going to lose money because the money that comes in from the federal government, it goes for, it goes for schools, it goes for health care, it goes for infrastructure, and it goes for housing. Mm-hmm. And our communities need that money. And it's actually our money that we pay in taxes. The federal government, they distribute, I guess, between 600 and $800 billion every year. Mm-hmm. And the money goes depending on how many people live in a community. Yep. So if we're not there, we're invisible, we don't get the money, the money will go to some other states. It, it won't come back to us. This is the money that we paid for in our income taxes and federal mm-hmm. taxes that comes back to us. But we've got to be there for the money to come back. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you for that important work. And I'm, I'm so happy to hear of your successes. Thank you. And I know the audiences as well. So, so one question I had, and, and kind of wrapping up, because we're running out of time. So you're 89 years old. Uh, after... <laughs> After all these years of organizing, what motivates you to keep going? Well, it's like I said, I think I just want to share the story of empowerment with people, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, just reminding them that we have the power and that we can make the changes that need to be made. And the one thing that, you know, when we organized uh, the farm workers, uh, people would say to us, well, how do you get these poor people that aren't citizens, you know, Mm -hmm. many of them that don't speak English? Mm-hmm. How can you get them uh, to be involved? And the main thing we have to say to people is you have power. 
We have power. Every single one of us has power, but the power is in your person. And this is all that you need. But you've got to come together with others and you've got to take direct action. Otherwise, we can't make any changes. And I think that's the one thing that we just have to instill into people to make them understand that. Not to be afraid uh, to act on their power, especially women. Not to be afraid to act on our power. Excellent. And you know, in the documentary, and I think we have copies of it outside if people want to buy it, but in the documentary, Robert Kennedy... Just before he gets assassinated, he says, we have obligations and responsibilities to our fellow citizens. We have obligations and responsibilities to our fellow citizens. And when we think about who are our fellow citizens, you know, they're immigrants, they're homeless people, you know, the people that we need to reach out to, uh, to get them to become involved, become advocates, you know. We have that responsibility. And if we want to be part of the healers, And again, going back to Harriet Tubman, you know, she fought for the abolition of slavery. Well, we can fight for the abolition of racism, sexism, homophobia, right? Mm -hmm. You know, all the, you know, the things that we have to do to preserve our planet, we can do that, Mm -hmm. you know. The abolition of ignorance. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. (laughs) Excellent. So you have led a tremendous life of activism and organizing. What message do you have for young people who want to enter a life of social service today? Well, I hope that we can get everybody, uh, especially our young people. We know that young people right now, they are kind of leading the path. You might say the vanguard, the young people that are fighting to get rid of guns in our society. Yeah. You know, uh, so I, I like to say to young people, they talk about them being the, the, the future. No, they are the present. Because mm-hmm. they are the present, and uh, they, they have the energy, of course, mm-hmm. that a lot of us older folks sometimes we don't have. You know, so <laughs> they can definitely make a difference, and and not to be afraid. I think the one thing that holds everybody back is is just fear. And I like to uh, say to them, do the canvassing, go door to door. And, yeah. and everybody here, too, I like to say that to them, too. You know, I know everybody here probably votes, but that's not enough. We have to put on our sneakers and go door to door and talk to those people because uh, the ones, especially the ones that are not engaged, because they have doubts and they have fears. And mm-hmm. but sometimes when you at a door talking to people, then you can, you know, help them uh, get, at, you know, get rid of some of the fears and the doubts that they have, mm-hmm. so that they can be fully engaged. Wonderful. Yeah. So if there was one lesson that you learned that you would like to pass on to future generations, what would it be? Well, I think we are in a crisis in our world right now. Uh, We don't even know if we can save our planet uh, because of global warming. And uh, it's a war that we're in right now, I think. And this war, it's almost like a war against humanity, you might say. Yeah. You know, that all of us have have to, uh, you know, come. we've got to come up and and we've got to stand up and we've got to join the the movement uh, to save our planet, uh, to to save our people. Mm-hmm. Everybody's people. We yeah. Can do it. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, and we, and we can yeah. do it by voting. It's simple. What was that? And we can do it by voting. Yes. <laughs> Coming back to that. Yep. Circling around always. Well, Dolores, it has been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Uh, thank you. I'd like to give a big thank you to the audience and for meeting with us. Before. Before we close, before we close, 
And I, I wanted to say that all the audience has been asking us questions, and now I'm going to ask the audience a question, okay? <laughs> and it's a very simple question, and I know you know the answer, but I want you to wait for me before you answer, okay? And the question I'm going to ask you is, who's got the power? And I want all of you to say, we've got the power. And when I say what kind of power, I want you to say people power, okay? But I want you to shout it so loud that the neo-Nazis can hear us, <laughs> the homophobes, the climate deniers, okay? The bigots, the racists, all of those haters out there so they can hear us, okay? So here, here goes the question. Who's got the power? What kind of power? So are we going to be the healers? Are we going to have those uncomfortable conversations with people? Are we going to go out there and organize, advocate, do the canvassing that needs to be done? What do we say? Se puede o no se puede? Sí, sí, sí se puede. Okay. All right, which means, of course, yes, we can. So let's put our hands together and do a unity clap. Let's go. Sí, se puede. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs and Performances. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website, ciis.edu podcast.